Then, you know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, Brother Man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashian. I'm joined, as always, by the newly christened playa, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, if I I don't normally wear a hat, but if I did, I would definitely tip it off to the tip it to the Texas Rangers for eliminating those stinking, cheating Astros from the playoffs. You know, I love my Yankees, but my second favorite team is is always whoever's playing the Astros. Yeah. You know, it, it, I still say one of the biggest travesties, getting caught rigging the World Series and getting to keep your title. Right, exactly. And, and you know, it kills me. And, and, I mean, obviously we could get so distracted with baseball, Benny, but Major uh, Major League Baseball tries to defend it by saying they had to give out too many uh, immunity deals to get people to talk, to, to, to warrant it, you know, which makes me wonder how much evidence did you have in the first place if, if – 99% of the people you're investigating got an immunity deal. Right. That's, that seems like a really bad way to do that. And what kind of message does it send? I mean, we caught you. We're going to slap you on the wrist, but you, you get to keep your prize. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you, you cheated. You openly rigged to, to conspire to cheat, to win the world series. But um, other than that, have fun making your millions of dollars, keep right, rigs, exactly. and one or two people will get a stern finger shaking. But, uh, well, Benny, you, know, uh, you know, if I wanted to go, we could go another direction. I, I was about to say before before we get before we get George started on baseball. Benny, no, I'm it. not even. That wouldn't even be about baseball. I think we could we could head to the White House. Oh uh -oh. man! Well, before we, we get won't do that because that's sidetracked is is it should be the subtitle of our. But show. But I am man. with you on I am King Astros. I agree. <laughs> Well, we got a familiar face coming back with us, Benny. Why don't you tell everybody who the third man is this evening? Yeah, Dan, our guest has been on our show so many times. I'm kind of running out of stuff for an introduction, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it the old Boy Scout try. So our guest is a wrestling scholar, published author, which is the, the great book, uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Wars, a raconteur extraordinaire, my, my eight years of uh, high school French, and just an overall great guy. Uh, I'll, I'll never get tired of welcoming our good friend George Shire to Dan and Benny. George, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you just should say George Shire is here. You can leave off all that other stuff. George Shire in the house. Right, exactly. Because, you know, I always tell people when I get up in the morning, just like you, I got to put my pants on one leg at a time, and that's it. So, right. you know, I don't get into this bit uh, better than anybody else. So, hey, I'm just here to talk wrestling, guys. Let's do it. Well, we're going to talk wrestling, Benny. Uh, we got we got a lot of topics. We wanted to kind of get your pick George's brain on on what's been happening in the news. First thought to you. First question to you, Benny. What are you thinking? Yeah, George. Before we get into the the meat of the wrestling, I wanted to lead lead the chat off by talking about uh, the the WFIA, the Wrestling Fans International Association. So you're on the board of directors. Uh, I'm actually on the finance committee uh, underneath Brian Ferguson, whose Bumps and Thumps podcast you were on, I believe, last week. 
uh, talking about Nick Bockwinkle. Bob Smith was on our show a few weeks ago, and, and uh, we brought it up there. But I do think it bears repeating. So if you could, please tell our listeners about the WFIA, the purpose of it, and uh, also how, the, how can they join and participate? Well, I think the last two things you just said are, are very simple. Uh, what the purpose is, is to support professional wrestling and to bring awareness to professional wrestling. And, and the reason that was important back in the day was that before the social media era, before the Internet, before computers uh, and everything that we can now learn so quickly, the only thing we had was an organization like the, the WFI, Wrestling Fans International Association. And so it started back in 1968. And every year, just very simply put, every year, Don Wilson at the time, who was the uh, the president, the the just the guru of the whole outfit, he would work with various territorial promoters around the country, and we'd have a we'd have a convention. And what was neat about it is that in those days when we didn't know what happened in St. Louis, Missouri last night, or we didn't know what happened in San Francisco, California, because we had no way of finding out, it was fun to go to these other territories. The promotions would work with the WFIA for a two- or a three-day weekend. They would put on a wrestling card. We would be the guests. We would have fan clubs that wrestlers would appear at. Um, it was just a way for fans to get together and share the, the, the stories about their respective territories. And it worked well for, boy, I'll tell you, almost two decades. And then it faded away due to some unscrupulous person that took over after Don was no longer involved. And it went away. Now, Brad Drake has brought it back. To join, it's free. Just go to the WFI website or go to the WFI Facebook page. Click join. It's free. And then next year, we're going to we're working next September on having a virtual convention. And right. in order to go deep into that, you want to go to the website and just kind of follow the goings on. But when you join, you will receive a, a newsletter that will come through your email. And you don't have to do anything but join. Simple as that. And, George, when when was the heyday of it? Was it the 60s through the 80s or what? when? It was it was 1968 when it was formed. Okay. And it went through the 70s, and as the 80s, uh, yeah, into about 1982ish or so, and then it kind of faded away as new technology took over. And and like I say, there was a person that had uh, taken over the WFIA. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, after Don Wilson had left, and um, let's just say he didn't do things right, and people got gypped out of money and it, it it was a bad scene so uh actually sadly it got a bad name for a few years there and that wasn't fair because i was involved with the original organization and there was was nothing more fun if you guys think right now of these gatherings that are taking place these fan fests that are taking place they're popular today you've got mm -hmm. the cauliflower alley club you've got the hall of fame uh weekends that take place at the respective wrestling hall of fames this is what the WFIA was like, where you'd go to a territory. And, you know, I was all over the country. I was in Indiana. I was in Texas, you know, Houston, Dallas, uh, Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, other places where you just go there and it's their wrestling. You saw new wrestlers, different wrestlers. Promoters worked with the with the WFIA. And we were we were honored as fans 
to have the wrestlers come out and mingle with us, sign autographs, pose for pictures. And that's what it was all about. So we had something way before what some of the modern day gatherings and fan fests, et cetera, are doing. And you didn't have to pay other than your membership at that time to the WFIA. And of course your airfare and hotel for the convention, whatever. But you didn't have to pay for autographs or any of that stuff. And the wrestlers were just there to have a good time with you. It was really a fun, fun time and lifelong friendships that were acquired from that. Guys like Tom Burke, Scott Teal, Dave Berzinski, Diane Devine, Marilina Zeal, just so many. Joyce Postian, um, people, Darla Staggs. These are people that I became friends with 50 or more years ago. Wow. You know, 55, 60 years ago, and we're friends today. And it was because of these this organization. So we're doing it, the virtual fan club uh, reunion next year. There will be all kinds of details on how people can be included in it, but um, it's free to join the club. The newsletter is excellent, too. I've, oh. I've, read, I've read the newsletter. Really good stuff. Brad Drake has done a phenomenal job at putting together the – Wrestling Fans News Magazine, it is great. And that's used, that used to be what we'd get, although it was a lot cruder in printing style back in the day when you talk, you know, you're talking 50-some years ago, 55 years ago. So really state-of-the-art for today. Well, you know, the, uh, it's funny because you always talk about classic wrestling and obviously the appreciation of, of the old school and I think that ties into what I wanted to ask about is you, you mentioned the wrestling conventions. There's always big ones that pop up. Uh, WrestleCon, uh, that kind of follows WrestleMania every year. Uh, the big 80s WrestleFest. Um, and from that comes a lot of old meet and greets with stars. Uh, there was a post the other day on the Dan and Benny Facebook page uh, about a, a, an appearance uh, at a convention, Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan was charging $214 for the autograph package. You were quite vocal in your disapproval of this. And in the years, I mean, Benny mentioned it in the intro, mm -hmm. your book, you've signed countless copies of it, never charged a penny. Uh, I shared the story not not that long ago of meeting uh, Axe and Smash. Uh, they were in their demolition gimmicks, but obviously Bill Eady, one of the you know, leg, one of the best mass wrestlers of all time, in my opinion. And it was a picture autograph combo with them was $50. Sergeant Slaughter uh, recently was, I think, $50. And I paid a little extra because he put me in the, the Cobra clutch. But, um, you know, the, the uh, <laughs> yeah, pay for that. Well, well, I had, I had, I had dressed I'll have to find the picture and send it to you. I had dressed right. up in his uh, Iraqi sympathizer outfit, you know, and he, he absolutely loved it. But, um, I was wondering if you could you could kind of share your thoughts on that. These these money grabs, these celebrities, wrestlers, especially that are charging just absorbent amounts for fan meet and greets. Well, you know, here's the first thing you got to say. I'm not going to begrudge anyone that has decided that they want to pay for an autograph or they've decided that so and so is worthy to give X dollars to to get his autograph. I, I don't begrudge them for that. That's their decision. Um, I will tell you, and when you commented that I've signed many of my books, let me clarify, I am no Hulk Hogan. So, you know, somebody getting, if I ask somebody to charge them to, to sign my autograph, you know, it ain't going to happen. But the whole point of the thing is this. I have been around this wrestling business for 60 years, okay? And I have 
hundreds of autographs. I have never paid for an autograph, ever. And you name some really big names through the decades. I have autographs from them. I have it signed to George, whatever, and some message that they've delivered. The point is this. I firmly believe that if you get so big and you think you're you're the greatest thing that God ever put on the planet that you need to charge people to have your autograph, well, then I don't want your autograph. That's me. I've had people that'll sell a book, and, and I, we talked about Hulk Hogan. I, I, I don't know that he ever did this particular thing, but I'm going to use it as an example. There have been authors or wrestlers that put out books that say, my book is X dollars, whatever the cost is to buy it. And if you want it autographed, it's more. I look at him and I go, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. That's me. Um, The fact that guys like Hogan, Flair, and so many of these gigantic mega stars made so much money in their lives and the fact that they're now broke, I don't feel sorry for them because you did something wrong, kids. Right. You know, when you're when you're out there spending, you make a million, you spend two million. I'm sorry, I'm not going to support you now by paying to have you autograph a book, a picture, a clipping, a poster, a program. No. Now that's just me. And when I saw this thing about Hulk Hogan, I just said, you know what? That's the biggest joke in the world because Hogan and flair in the 80s and the early 90s there was no other wrestler that made more money than those two and the fact that and i'll tell you i think they're pretty pretty much both of them are destitute well they're that's their problem i don't know what they did but if you're going to charge me to sign your name because your ego is so big you should be damn glad that there is a fan out there that wants to come up to you and say, thank you, and would you autograph my picture for me? And if you don't want to do that, to me, you're a piece of crap. How's that for telling you how I feel? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a bit more gas in the fire there, George, because Mike Monty uh, was telling me that he went to an event where um, A.J. Lee wanted $999 to autograph three things. Now, now we're, I mean, at least Hogan is Hogan. You know, but we're talking about A.J. Lee here. And I guess, you know, the, the, the bigger picture is when when did wrestling become something? I mean, my first show was 1968. I know your, your dad took you away before that. I, I'm sure my dad, went when he went, took me to the Island Garden, uh, paid maybe seven or eight bucks for two tickets. You know, now you have parents taking their kids to these events. And now, you know, when, when uh, the, the, you know, suppose some young lady's a fan of A.J. Lee. Oh, mommy, can I get it? Please, please. Now, all of a sudden, here comes out the credit card, you know, racking up $999 for something you really can't afford. When, when did wrestling become such a big business? Well, you know, the thing is, Benny, it's up to the it's up to the fans. Like I said earlier, I don't begrudge anybody. If, if you want to give Hulk Hogan $214 for him to sign a poster for you or, a, or whatever you're having signed, that's that's a personal choice. If you can justify it, that's cool. I just look at these guys that say, I won't sign something unless you pay me. And I, I, I'm i sorry, I'm not buying into that that uh, product. It, it's just in my world, it's wrong. And the, the thing is, these guys, 
they should be honored that somebody even remembers them. And it, it, this isn't just wrestling. This could be baseball players, football players. It could be movie actors, whoever it is. When you when you put out a book, it, it's pretty much common knowledge that if anybody, whether it be a political figure, a, a Hollywood personality, whoever it is, they will publish a book. They will go around and have book signings. The objective there is to sell the book. And you don't put out a book to not sell it and make money. So there's no problem with that. You put out your book, you charge your $29.95 or whatever the book is. But if you're going to sit there and tell me that I'm going to pay $29.95 for your book, well, if you want it signed, it's an extra $20. No. No. Take your ego off and, and just give me the book or I don't want your book at all. And like I said, through the years, I don't know where it's become so big where these guys are charging so much to appear, you know, and they think they're so good that they got to have money for their autographs. I'll tell you something that happened to Cauliflower Alley a few years ago. There were there were fans that would walk in and have a pile of pictures, you know, and I'm serious when I go this this high of glossy pictures and they they'd set it before the wrestler and they'd ask the wrestler to sign them. And we had some wrestlers that would sign their name on the picture, whatever. Well, lo and behold, those pictures are now on eBay. Right. Mm -hmm. Somebody is making money off of those pictures. Now, I have a problem with that. Because if if, if I get Nick Bockwinkel's photo, his, his autograph, and then I turn around and sell his autographed photo for $150 or $200 or whatever, and again, if somebody's dumb enough to buy it, you know, it's all about what people will pay and what people will sell. Well, you know, what's the value of anything? What someone's willing to pay for it. So, but we eventually at Cauliflower, this was back when I was on the board of directors there. We eventually told fans, you can have one picture signed by the by the wrestlers that were there. And the wrestlers would sign to George, Nick Bockwinkle. You're not going to put just Nick Bockwinkle and have somebody make money. And ironically, there were fans that were doing this. And here's the other bottom line. They're not real fans. They're out there to make a buck. Right. So yep. I have, I want the wrestlers, if they're going to get paid for something, I want them to get the money. But I also don't agree with the wrestler charging. And I know all these fan fests. That's the whole lure. You buy a package. Uh, you know, you pay $50 here, $100 there for this, you know, whatever this wrestler or wrestlers are doing and they're popular and I'm not condemning them. And if the wrestlers, you know, if the fans are willing to pay it fine, I'm just saying that I don't agree with it and I will not ever go to a fan fest and I will never go to a wrestler's table and I will never pay for their autograph. If they don't want to give it to me, fine. I don't care. I don't care how big you were. I don't care how much money you were. I don't care how many times you were a champion. I don't care. And as I said, if you were to walk down the hall to my wrestling room, I can show you hundreds of personally autographed programs, pictures, etc. And I have never sold a one of them. I have never made copies of one of them. I'm not that type of a person, but there are vultures out there that do it. So it's a twofold thing. But Hulk Hogan charging money or $900 for an autograph, I don't know who you, I don't know that I'd pay an autograph pay, for God to sign a picture for me. That's just me. You know, it's, I don't agree with it. 
But if you do it and you want to, and your pocketbook is cool with it, hey, that's what this is all about. We live in America. So, you know, people talk about their collectibles. Well, this, you know, I'm selling it for $9 zillion. What do you mean it's worth $9 zillion? It isn't until somebody buys it. Right. And then it's worth $9 zillion. If somebody somebody pays for it. Everything has no value except to the people making the deal, the seller and the buyer. There's your value. Whether it be a collector car or whatever it is, the value is what one's willing to buy and one's willing to sell for. But I'm not. I'm not paying for autographed photos. Nope. I, I no, just I preaching I to the choir. That. I I remember the uh, the story when with uh, Cameo when Cameo really started pushing the wrestlers heavy, and I think you know Cameo the service where you pay whatever the amount and celebrities record a two minute video for you or something, and it was people were comparing like Ric Flair and some of these legends were three or four hundred dollars and Sasha well I guess. Mercedes Monet now, but Sasha Banks was on there and hers was like five grand for, for a two minute happy birthday video. Oh, and it's you. like, I mean, hey, what whatever you think you're worth, I guess. We had an incident also at Cauliflower Alley when Nick Bockwinkle was the president of Cauliflower. And one year, and again, remember this, when you go to Cauliflower Alley, the wrestlers that are there, they're there to mingle with the fans, talk with the fans. You know, if they got a book to sell or they have posters right, right. to sell, that's cool. Go ahead. But when they start charging for autographs, superstar Billy Graham was there and he was down at his table and he was refusing to pose for pictures with wrestlers unless they paid him. And he was refusing to sign autographs. And Nick Bockwinkle, this is a true story, kids. Nick Bockwinkle went down to him and he said, Billy, this is not what Cauliflower Alley Club is. You are not going to be doing this. You will not be charging. And Billy ended up pouting and going away. He left, never saw him again. Well, later on, Billy Graham, you know, sad to hear he had a lot of health problems. The guy had, you know, a lot of it, his own problem too, because of the substance abuse and the, you know, his, his, the way he lived. But the bottom line was, is then he came to Cauliflower Alley to the benevolent fund and they wanted, he wanted money. The thing about this situation is that when we've got guys that make so much money and then you want to charge me for your autograph, you just should be damn glad that I remember you. And then you got to remember, guys, I come from a simpler era. When we'd go to a wrestling card, and I know fans today would never believe this, but when we went to a wrestling card, when two wrestlers entered the ring, you could go up to the corner ring post, hand them a notepad or a piece of paper or a program, and the wrestler would sign it for you before their matches. You know, I got programs that have Vern Gagne scribbled on it or Joe Scarpello or whoever the wrestler was. <clears throat> and that was cool. But there are some wrestlers that just, they think they're bigger than, you know. And the fact that you got guys that I, it, it bothers me more when I know they made so much money. And now you want me to pay to have your autograph. Where you're starting a GoFundMe fund, like where where's the millions of dollars you made? Well, and in the two examples we're talking about, and they both provided so much entertainment. Both were so good at what they did, Hogan and Flair. You know, God bless them. They they gave us so much, but now you think I have to pay you for your autograph? And especially when 
you're destitute. I don't know how you can be destitute with the money you made. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I never made millions and millions of dollars nope. a year. And and I'm retired and I oh. I go from month to month and hope things go oh. well, you know. Dan, Dan pays me in Panera bread coupons. So, yeah, that, I, I hear you. <clears throat> so, anyway, Just, I think we beat that horse and to death. Yeah, we did. If Hulk Hogan, uh, go to hell. I'm not buying hot, I'm not going to pay for your autograph. Hot, hot dog and a handshake. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Benny? Well, George, so let's get into a little bit of current events. So uh, recently, AEW, the, the Dynamite Show in Independence, Missouri, sold about 3,600 tickets. And their Collision Show in Toledo sold uh, slightly less than 4,400. So the combined total is still less than what WWE is drawing for a Raw or SmackDown. So do you, do you attribute this to still to be them being in startup mode? Or is AEW doomed to being the, the red-headed uh, stepchild forever. And the second part of the question is, Tony Khan did his very imi- best imitation of a fanboy, uh, bad-mouthing every, everything WWE and getting into it with a lot of the fans. Is this how an owner of a, a promotion should behave? The last part of your question, no, it's not the way a promotion should behave. And, you know, the thing is with pro wrestling today, um, the WWE has owned the universe. We may as well say for it's going to be coming up what 38 years, right? I think 39 years. It was 2004 or uh, 1984 in December. 84. Yeah, 83 it actually was. Right. That, so close when to 40. Hogan, Hogan jumped and the first bullet was shot. So we're talking. We're coming up on 40 years here. And wrestling changed in a way that none of us could have predicted at the time. We all know all the territories are gone. I honestly do not ever see the any territory or any other wrestling organization being able to compete with WWE. And I also don't think that WWE is going to stay the stronghold that they are. I think eventually it's just going to level off and it will just be out there. That's just my opinion. But to badmouth them, eh. All these other promotions, you know, everybody that comes along, they're going, they're going against the WWE. Well, nothing could be more David and Goliath than that situation. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, kind of uh, expanding on that a little bit, um, you know, obviously, other than the the ticket sales, a recently AEW Dynamite was moved to Tuesday because of sports, Major League Baseball scheduling, and directly opposed uh, NXT. Now, WWE sent several other main roster stars, uh, including John Cena, uh, LA Knight, who's the, the hottest star they have right now. And um, despite the fact that it was never confirmed, it was teased, they had a big uh, appearance from The Undertaker and handedly, handedly thumped AEW in the ratings. I think the final tally, they beat them by well over 300,000. Um to kind of expand on, on what Benny was asking about, two things. One, um, where do you what do you suppose? I want your thoughts on the viewers because AEW lost more viewers than NXT gained. So that wasn't fans choosing to watch NXT instead. That was fans just turning the TV off and saying, "I'll come back next week." Uh, but to kind of expand on what, what Benny was asking about, they Tony Khan went berserk on social media uh, imply yeah they believe at one point calling well 
he wasn't directly using names, but he called Triple H a bald asshole. He bragged that for the first time ever in history, The Undertaker and John Cena were on segments that drew less than a million viewers. Uh, you know, like that was some accomplishment AEW has. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were, one, on NXT handedly winning, like you'd said, the David and Goliath match. And also, if you could kind of expand a little bit more on Tony Khan's handling of it, he had a, a real-time meltdown as the news came in and as fans kind of just started the discussions that NXT had, or excuse me, the AEW had handedly lost that week. What you've got is, I think it's because of our social media era that we're in, you know, Tony having the meltdown as you refer to it. This is something that happens all over social media today for everything and anything. There's always somebody out there that's going, they're flipping out, they're, they're, they're broadcasting their viewpoint, their opinion, and, and what was right and what was wrong and why it was done and why it should have been done and why it should have been done differently and this guy's a jerk. And that's, what we're, that's the world we're living in. But what I can tell you is this, when you got these two, these two wrestling promotions running head to head, or, you know, next to each other, you're always going to force the fans, whoever the buying public is, you're going to force them to choose A or B. It's always going to be that way. And to give you an example, you know, we talk about the stronghold back in the old school wrestling era about how the territorial system was so good and, and this promoter didn't go into this promoter's territory. They minded each other's invisible fence. And I had my wrestlers and you had your wrestlers. And then in, in persons at each town didn't know what was going on in the fan. But the reality is, is that there were uh, rival promotions that would go into a territory back in the day. For example, and you guys can look this up. We are all familiar with Sheik Ed Farhat in Detroit. It was yep. his it was his territory. He owned Detroit and all the cities and a few states around it and up into what was it, Windsor, Canada, or whatever it was. He owned this, this territory. Well, there was a time when Dick the Bruiser decided he was going to go and run opposition in Detroit against the Sheik. And what he did was he brought in all his buddies. The, the Bruiser brought in all his friends, you know, the Wilbur Snyders, Vern Gagne's, Johnny Powers, Johnny Valentine, Bill Miller, you name it, you name it, you name it. He had all these guys that come to his rescue to help him go against the Sheik. On the other hand, the Sheik then goes in and brings in all his powerhouses and calls in the, you know, all his buddies that he's worked with, all his wrestling friends. And they put on these mega cards in Detroit. One's at the Kobo Arena, and the other one was at, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the the other auditorium. It, that could have been. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line was that you had these two mega cards, cards that you normally wouldn't see, the average fan wouldn't normally see. I mean, these were like WrestleManias before WrestleMania. And who's the winner? The fans. Fans. But eventually, the fans have to decide. Where do I want to put my my ticket dollars? And if they're running the same night or or back to back nights, the fans are eventually going to 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 be the winners, and the and the ones to decide. And so, as it turned out, the Sheik ended up eventually winning the war, and the Bruiser just casually pulled out. Before you know it, the Bruiser and the Sheik were actually working together, but again as buddies. 
But it, it, we had those type of things all the time, someone coming in to run opposition to you. And, you know, one of the best examples is, is for, for the average fan, let's go back to, we just talked about the 40th anniversary coming up here for, for uh, the WWF going national. In any territory in the country back in 1983, 84, 85, 86, it was heaven because we could get WWE, it was F then, WWF, we could get our own local AWA or NWA or whatever it was. We could get WWA, we could get Texas Wrestling, we could get Atlanta Wrestling. The fans sitting at home, it was hog heaven. We had all these promotions. But eventually, the fans can only support one. And eventually, McMahon kept putting the money into it, emptying his pockets into more talent, stealing more talent whatever he was doing, and eventually he won. So the thing with, you know, people talk today, they say, well, AEW is probably the closest thing. I At least that's what I've heard, because you guys know I don't really follow this stuff. Right. But AEW is like the closest thing to the rival to, to WWF or WWE as it is today. And then there's talk, and, and I hope he can make it happen, but there's talk about Billy Corgan. With, with his NWA group, that, you know, he might be getting a deal with TV and all that. Well, more power to him. But I just don't see anybody having the power to overtake WWE. I don't see it happening. And I'm running out of years, so you guys may, may be witness to it later on. I'm, I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm but not I'm too just saying I'm older, than, I'm older than you guys are. Maybe Dan. And, uh, yeah, Dan, bye, Dan. Oh, but, the uh, wrestling, I don't know, maybe we'll touch on this later, but wrestling can never return to the way it was because of the way it is now. Right. Once it went national as it did, we were in a whole different ballpark. And it's changed, not to my liking, but it's changed. Well, to a quick point, um, Benny, before we get back to what you, you look like you were about to say, George, that that is actually confirmed deal. Um, Billy Corgan and the NWA signed a deal with CW yes. Network, which is actually the I believe at the time they said it's the 18th largest network in America, which actually puts it only one spot behind TBS, which airs some of AEW's content. So that's actually, you know, it's not it's not a, a travel channel or whatever it was that that TNA had for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not a bad deal, and I look forward to seeing what what comes of it because uh, you know. I do too. You know, you know, guys, it, it's interesting though because when we look at the wrestling, this is always tough to do because a lot of times people aren't going to understand where I'm coming from on it. But when you look at the wrestlers today, it, it's it's been so different the way it has been presented the last 35, 40 years. A guy can come out of a camp or whatever little training he gets, he can come out of the camp and because he's six foot nine inches tall and got muscles that, you know, span two counties, he's immediately the next big superstar. He's immediately the megastar. The promotion is putting everything around him. The guy could be green as grass in the ring, can't do a darn thing. But we, we promote these guys. We don't have that background anymore where from the from the after World War II, so let's just say late 40s, all the way up to about the mid 80s, 
when we had so many wrestlers, thousands of them around the country, guys, that worked in all of these territories and all of these guys had earned their oats in the openers and the in the preliminary bouts and were main eventers. They didn't just come along and get pushed. Today's wrestling is it's whatever they want to market you as. You know, you're you're great. So the fans buy their posters and their their mugs and their their dolls and everything. It's a different world. Yeah. It's just a different world. There aren't there aren't wrestlers that can carry all these promotions. And AEW, you know, how many times do we see wrestlers that were formerly with WWE in AEW? Some of them even go back. Right. Or they change names. You know, they just change the guy's name. But that doesn't work the same today as it did back in the old days. Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, okay, we all know. Well, in the old days, we didn't know that he wrestled that name in Atlanta, and now he's up in Minneapolis under a different name. Today, it's just recycling the same stuff and putting different gimmicks on him, and the fans are all savvy to it. Right. Well, George, this is getting all too depressing, so I want to go back into old school wrestling for a brief moment. <laughs> I, I'm kind of like you. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I've always been a huge fan of mass wrestlers, and uh, I know that you know a lot more about this than I do, but th- th- I know that there's many reasons why a wrestler actually dons the hood. So I'm going to give you two wrestlers that, of my favorites, and I want you to tell me why why did they decide to become a mass wrestler and uh, what was there, you know, for how long? So one uh, one of my favorite wrestlers from when I first started watching, Dr. Bill Miller, and the other one is Johnny Walker, uh, a.k.a. Mr. Wrestling 2. Well, first of all, let's talk on something that you want to talk about depressing. The masked wrestler was a gimmick that in the old school era, in the kayfabe era, was so predominantly successful. There wasn't a territory in the country that didn't have at various times a masked wrestler from the proverbial parts unknown, that highly populated city right. of unknown people. <laughs> okay. I really feel sorry for the mailman in parts unknown. Right. Yeah, mean- I know. But it was the greatest gimmick in the world because <clears> – <throat> Promoters could put a mask on a wrestler or a wrestler could decide he wanted to put a mask on, create this persona, you know, and we had the spoilers and the destroyers and the assassins and the Yankees and the medics and the interns, you know, and you name it, they had a name for them and all of these wrestlers, but nobody knew who they were. They were able to keep it a secret. Now, again, with social media and the Internet and everything that we have today, that gimmick has been gone for for a couple decades now. You can't put a mask on. We just talked about Brian Danielson and Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan couldn't put a or Brian Danielson. I think that's his real name. Yes. You Mm -hmm. can't put a mask on him and put him somewhere and put him somewhere in, you know, in AEW or some other small promotion because Immediately, everybody knows who he is because of social media and because of the way it is, because wrestling isn't kayfabe anymore. So that gimmick is gone. Now, to answer your question, a guy like Dr. Bill Miller, who, by the way, is one of my favorite mask guys and favorite wrestlers over the decades. Dr. Bill Miller, real doctor. He was a veterinarian by trade. He did that and had something to fall back on after his wrestling days. 
So, but Bill Miller was a legit, great amateur champion out of Ohio. He was a great professional wrestler. The guy was legit about 6'4", maybe, maybe even 6'5". I don't know. He was just a big guy. Wasn't overly muscled or anything, but he was big. Right. And he was agile. And he could do it in the ring. So the question is, why would they put a mask on him? Well, in those territory days, it was such a simple formula. When a wrestler came into a territory, they would agree to come in for uh, six months, a year, two years. The promoters would try to work different things out to get them over, to have them over. Bill Miller, he was a mask guy probably four Four different times in his career, he was uh, he was Doctor X back in the late fifties, very early sixty, not not a later Doctor X. He was Doctor X, and then he became Mister M, right, under a mask, and then he wrestled in St. Louis for uh, maybe give or take a year as uh, the Crimson Knight, and then he also. Uh, Earlier in his career, he was under a mask. That was there was uh, loco. It was a short stint. But so why put a mask on a guy so well known? Simply because Bill Miller was already known. Let's come up with somebody new. It, it was you know nobody knows who he is, and the fact that in those days he could pull it off, it worked. It was a great gimmick. We had, we all talk about the uh, world famous destroyer, the, the most popular. We had other destroyers, but Dick Beyer was the destroyer. Dick Beyer was the only one that did it differently than 99% of the other mass wrestlers. He decided he was going to earn his living for the rest of his career as the destroyer, and he was going to make money with it. So his gimmick was he told promoters, I will come into your territory. I will work for you. I'll be a heel. I'll be a baby, whatever you want me to do, but I will not unmask. Dick Byers gone. Dick Byers no longer wrestling. And I will not unmask. I will not be in a match that I'm going to lose my mask. When I'm leaving the territory, I won't unmask. Well, when he came in to work for Vern Gagne in 1967, Vern wanted the destroyer to come in. He wanted Dick Byer to come in, but Vern told him, he says, well, you know, when you when it's going to come time to leave, you know, I'm going to want you to take off the mask. And Byer says, forget it. Then we're not talking. So the two of them came up with a different angle, decided to bring in a whole different wrestler, Dr. X. And if you looked at Dr. X in 1967 and you looked at the destroyer next to him, the average fan would not have been able to figure out they were the same guy. Right. The Destroyer had a completely different mask with open eyes and nose hanging out. He, and he had a big old nose on him. It had been broken 20 times, you know. <laughs> and he had his lips open. And then he had no no tunic top or anything. Had a pair of trunks, pair of white boots. Dr. X comes along. He's got a complete dark black mask, completely covered. You can hardly see his eyes. He's got a nose piece, a plastic or vinyl nose piece over his nose his mouth is completely covered he's got a tunic top on he wears a pair of trunks and a pair of tights and black boots you put them together you'd never know they were the same guy 
And Dr. X was here for three years. When it came time for him to leave, he was true to his word. He unmasked. But the destroyer was never unmasked. Then he went back to being the destroyer. So anytime a wrestler uh, put on a mask, it was really just a way to boost attendance, to, to gain fan base. You could put a guy in the ring, you know, and again, we teased about fans. We don't know where he comes from. He's from parts unknown. We don't know his weight. That's the mystery. The fans want to pay to A, see him unmasked. They see the good guy beat him. And of course, the mask guy keeps cheating and keeping his mask. It's all about drawing people. And when it finally gets a little stale, then they'd come to the conclusion and the wrestler would move on, maybe be unmasked. And that's what happened with most masked wrestlers. Now, your other example, Johnny Walker. That's kind of a unique one. Johnny Walker was a heck of a good draw as Johnny Walker. Earlier in his career, he had this gimmick. He was the rubber man. Yes. He was able to contort his body. He was had he was one of these, I don't know if it's double jointed or what the heck it is, but he could twist his legs and his arms and into positions that, you know, the most of us were gonna have to go to the a hospital le, for. A legit contortionist. Yes. And he, he had a long career as Johnny Walker. He was a nice looking young guy back in the day. Uh for, for the 50s and the 60s when he was wrestling, he had a he had, still had a head of hair. He was a good looking kid. As he got older, even though he was still really good in the ring, facially and physically, he wasn't looking young anymore. So he's, he did the mask gimmick before Mr. Wrestling, too. He was actually a bad guy called the Grappler under a mask. But eventually... He was unmasked, and then all of a sudden, Mr. Wrestling 2 showed up. What really prolonged Johnny Walker's career was the fact that he could be under that mask. And even though he looked older, he was one of those guys that when he'd walk into the ring, even though he was still able to do what he could do well in the ring, facially, physically, he looked old. And the mask hid that. So that gave him an additional extension to his career. He played his gimmick a little bit farther, too, because even by then, there were a lot of people as kayfabe started to dwindle a little bit. People knew that it was Johnny Walker, but he played the gimmick so much that he said that he wouldn't take the mask off for any reason. And they even did a deal when uh, Jimmy Carter was in the White House and Jimmy Carter's mother, Miss Lillian, she supposedly was an admitted wrestling fan. And they invited Mr. Wrestling to come to the White House to visit her. And the only problem was is that they wanted him to take off his mask to come into the White House, you know, <laughs> Secret Service, whatever it was. Now, some of this was storyline. I've got to believe that. But the fact is, he didn't take off his mask. He said he wouldn't. And if it meant he had to take his mask off, he wouldn't go see her. So... Eventually, you know, the deal was worked out and he got to come in and there's a photo floating around there with, you know, Miss Lillian with uh, Mr. Wrestling, her favorite wrestler. But he took it to the extent where he won't unmask to do that. But the mask gimmick was great. And a lot of guys in the masked wrestler era, uh, quite honestly, their careers would have been uh, 
probably shorter or a lot less successful for them had they not worn the mask. There were guys that did it just for a short time. And then there were guys that did it for a lot of their career. A guy like Jody Hamilton, Joe Hamilton of the Assassins. He pretty much, you know, he was Joe Hamilton in the beginning of his career, but then he put on the mask as first he was one of the Bolos, <coughs> B-O-L-O-S. And then they just changed their name to the Assassins and made the career of it. Uh, Tom Renesto was his tag team partner, Assassin number one originally. And uh, But Jody Hamilton made a better mask guy, and he made a lot of money at it. Don Jardine, you know, the spoiler, well, he also well, wrestled yeah. as the super destroyer. And uh, so some guys did it for a career and were successful with it. And other guys just did it for a short time for a promotion. There are a lot of guys that were famous in the business and people don't realize it because they spent their whole career under a mask. Uh, one of them is, is Tom Andrews. If I say that name to you, you say who? Well, Tom Andrews was a hell of a good wrestler and he was under a mask for 90% of his career as one of the medics, also one of the inter interns, and he was also uh, wrestled as the claw in Omaha with a mask on. So most of his career was with a mask. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Greatest gimmick in the world, and I'm sad that it's gone. If you anything, I am so sad that it's mm -hmm. gone because it was fun. Absolutely. I think, uh, I too, think some, too, of the, some of the, uh, like, the like masked, the masked or, or, or giant, if you remember, giant, giant machine, machine, or even, or even uh, uh, when they when they did the early days of the Blue Blazer, where there was, you could point, like, as fans, you knew, you're like, oh, that's Andre under there, or that's clearly whoever, and you, you kind of had that aura of real, where everybody pretended like they didn't know who that was. You couldn't, like you said with the social media, you couldn't do that today. Well, you have to realize, too, with the giant machine, super machine, uh, there were they had a whole ton of machines for that little stint there. When, when they came into the AWA, they had Crusher machine, you know. But the, the deal there was the attempt was never to not let the fans know who they were. They wanted the fans. Bill Eady was super machine, wasn't he? Yes. yes. Super, he was mass superstar. Um, but they weren't trying to tell, they weren't trying to keep it a secret. The idea was, is that supposedly the wrestlers said, hey, wait a minute, that's Andre the Giant. And everybody knew it, the fans, everybody except the promotion. But it was all that, that was part of the gimmick. But in the old days when they would protect the wrestler, uh, Claim they don't know who he is. The fans, honestly, most of the time didn't know. And, you know, Bill Eady as the superstar, he's one of the guys that I think was a guy that he was able to reinvent himself as the business changed. He started in the business as Bolo, Bolo Mongol. Mongol, right? Yeah. Bolo Mongol. And then he became mass superstar, had a great career under that mask. And eventually when that kind of went by the wayside, and you know, the thing is he wrestled in the WWF as mass superstar. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was right around the time, still around the time when Backlund was champion, kind of getting ready to lose to uh, Iron Sheik, mass superstar was there. 
Well, three, four years later, here comes this copycat road warrior team, Demolition. Demolition and Vince, that legitimately, Vince did that to try to copy the, the road warriors that he wasn't able to get yet. But once he was able to secure the road warriors, he threw axe and smash under the bus and went on. Yeah, you just posted uh, something about that, didn't you, Benny? About uh, Backlund against... Yeah, uh, I guess it was Eddie Gilbert was coming back from a legit neck injury. I think he was in a car accident and uh, wrestled a superstar on uh, WWF TV. Superstar gave him the neck breaker, and I guess Backlund tried to intervene. And then Backlund got one on the, uh, on the, you know, the, the concrete, and that led to their match at the Garden. The, the the thing too about masked wrestlers, let's just touch on this. When the territorial system was in full swing, there were wrestlers that could work a territory, and they may be working it as themselves, or they may be working the territory under a mask. But it allowed them when they went on a vacation or they took a trip to a different territory for a week or two that they could go in either go in as a mask guy or go in as themselves. And nobody was the wiser. Right. I'll give you a perfect example. When when uh, our Dr. X, Dick Byer, was going during the summer that was leading up to his going to be gone from the territory. And eventually we would have the, the mask, the unmasking. They brought in fans. We got it. We got somebody that's going to finally give us the identity. And we're going to bring in Mr. M reincarnation of Mr. M. Now, Bill Miller had been Mr. M here in the AWA in 1962. So we're talking an eight-year difference in time because now we're in 1970. But all of a sudden, they wanted fans to remember Mr. M. And Mr. M came in. He came in with his red mask, his red uh, trunks and tights. They never mentioned that he was Bill Miller again, but he was Mr. M and he was going to be the latest opponent. What was ironic about that is that at the exact same time frame this series of matches took place, Bill Miller was working regularly for Dick the Bruiser's WWA, and he was also a regular in St. Louis. And in St. Louis, at that time, he was wrestling as the Crimson Knight under a mask. So the same outfit he wore as the Crimson Knight, he came into Minneapolis and he was wearing his Mr. M just allowed him to be able to do this, to work a different territory. Well, to kind of circle back to the, to the modern era and somebody, I think that one of the few talents today that I genuinely believe could have survived in the territory era. Um, there's been a lot of rumors that his name has been in the news a lot recently uh, involving CM Punk and his future. Uh, obviously he had the release from AW. Um, there's been a lot of overtures about him rejoining WWE, uh, some some side comments he's made um, in some of his other projects. There, they've, uh, there's been commentary, uh, hints, um, wrestlers using moves, even USA Network itself tweeting out his catchphrase of best in the world. Um, so a couple of questions involving him. One, I would love to get your thoughts on his release from AEW when Tony Khan said that he felt his life was threatened. And two, do you think that in the never say never business that him going back to the WWE is possible? Well, I definitely think it's possible that he could go back to the WWE. I think let's look at um, 
the Hulk Hogan situation in WWE. You know, Hogan was the was the golden egg for the golden goose for Vince when he took over the world in 1984. But, you know, later on, Vince and Hulk had their differences and Hogan was gone and they they actually battled each other in court. I mean, good grief. And then eventually, you know, Hogan is back in the WWF or E, whatever it was at the time. And then eventually they're not together again because Hogan, you know, made some racial slur or something. I mean, whatever they want to use. The thing, Dan, that I think is really different, and if you want to use the CM Punk thing, everything today becomes, and again, it goes right back to this social media thing. Nothing today can be kept under the rug or kept a secret or kept quiet. Everything is vocal. Everything is out there in your face. Everybody and their brother has their own opinion, their own slant, their own take on it. And try to figure out the truth in between everything that's going around, who's tweeting, who's doing what. Um, Yeah, so I think he can go back. Whether or not he can get over his recent release and whatever the issues are, you know, the guy... The guy's a talent, but obviously there's a lot of issues between his personality and the personalities of the powers that be, and we're going to have this continuous fight going on, and it's going to end up being in the face of everybody who wants to follow it on social media, Every everything that goes on. So I don't know where CM Punk is going to go. Uh, back in the old days, in the territory days, we never heard about this stuff. If a wrestler had an issue with a promoter, or a territory, they just, they screw you, pack up his suitcase, calls up the next promoter in the town, another territory down south or out west or wherever, and they go and work in another territory. Everybody makes money, everybody's quiet. We didn't have the problems we do today. The other thing is, is that even though the wrestling business, and I've said this before, the wrestling business today looks so glitzy, so professionally produced and so well done, and it seems so bigger than life. The reality is the guys that are actually making money in the business, the wrestlers that are actually making the big paydays, there are they, they, there are very few of them. Because if they don't work for WWE, they don't work for maybe AEW, where do they go? Where do they go? There's no place to go. They're not going to be a wrestler. They got to go get a job as a carpenter somewhere. I don't know. But... In the old days, seriously, we had 3,000 or more wrestlers that were making, for that era, big money. They were making a full-time living, traveling, making money, supporting their families. And if they got into a tiff or they didn't like the territory, they didn't like the weather, whatever it was they didn't like about a territory, all they had to do was contact another promoter and if they, you know, obviously with reputations and how good they were, they go to another territory. That was the only reason the territorial system was so great, because it had a constant floating door of new talent, old talent coming back, new talent coming in, and it was always fresh. There's no fresh today. You got the same 200 wrestlers, if there's that many, that are just being recycled and everybody knows who they are. And, and some of them get bigger pushes this time than last time. But it, it, the business is dead. The reality of it is. It really is. If somebody says today they want to go and become a professional wrestler, I question their sanity. 
Okay, because so where are you going to make money? You, you only got one or possibly two companies that you can make a decent living in. The rest of them, you're not going to make any money. And there are no cards. House shows aren't existent anymore for the most part. I mean, we get WWE and in, in, uh, I live in the Twin Cities. We get WWE here once a year. What, what is that? You can't make money that way. Right, same here. You know, whereas back in the day, these wrestlers, they could wrestle seven, eight, you know, I say seven, eight nights a week because sometimes they had a double header. You know, they'd work an afternoon and travel 200 miles and wrestle in the evening too. But they could always make a living. And with the territories, this is a this is an old song being sung now, but the territory's gone. Vince McMahon ruined the business. Obviously, he's a billionaire. He's made a success of what he's done. He's doing well, but the way it was, it will never come back. It just won't come back. It's dead. That that's a perfect segue to the the, the next question, George. And we, and we talked about uh, Billy Corgan before signing that the deal with CW Network. But one of the other things that he wants to do is bring back the territories. And you already made the comment that you don't think we can go back. So why can't he do in 2023 what you know what the way it was in 1981? Well, maybe maybe 1981. That's probably about the last time you could really say it was true. But right, the territorial system. I've told people, and you can look this up. It's fact. We had 25, 30 territories in the United States, just the United States. So again, I mentioned before, there were probably 3,000 wrestlers that were making good money in that era to, to go and travel these territories. Now we're not talking, there were more than 3,000 because you had a lot of these guys that were working part-time. They just come in and work a town or a few dates here and there, and they weren't doing it full-time. In their real life job, they were a carpenter or whatever. But Billy Corgan, I, I truly, I, I wish, I wish him luck. I think he's tried hard to keep the NWA. I think he tries to present it as the continuation of the original. I don't really consider it that way. But where's he going to get the talent to to run a territorial system? You, 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 there's no wrestlers out there. That, that's the whole problem. You can't, you know, if you look at all of the little independent around the country, you got you got five matches or six matches on the card, and every guy on the on the entire card has been wrestling or or claims to be a wrestler, but they've they they're less than a year in the business, maybe two years. Where's he going to get the talent to run a territory or territories plural? So can he do it? I hope. But I, I don't see it returning. Well, I don't even think something, it's the. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, George. I didn't oh, mean to cut you off. Some things are actually, just dead. I, I was hoping you could expand. Kind of final thought as we get ready to wrap up here. You said not. Where is he going to get the wrestlers? I would like to know where is he going to get the behind the scenes brain power. There's not enough people left in America that would that would know how to run a wrestling territory. More or less, you know. Yeah, okay, I, I can go train. Or honestly, let's be let, let's look at like half the ta you know a good chunk of the AEW roster that that claim to be self taught, but you still need a booker, you still need backstage guys, you still need somebody who's trained to be a referee, you still need that mentality. Is there enough of those to run another hundred mini companies in this country? No, 
No, there, there isn't. And you know, what did it take to run a territory back in the day? Okay, use Vern Gagne. He, he, he headquartered out of Minneapolis, but he ran, you know, Minnesota, the Dakotas, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Denver or Colorado, uh, sometimes farther west, but those were his primary cities, Winnipeg, Canada. Okay, what did it take for him to run his company? He had to have a promoter, a representative in each of those cities to be the, the front guy. He had to go in, book the, the arenas a year or two out. We're talking complete years. We have to have dates for a whole year or, or longer booked with these arenas. He has to have a television outlet uh, exclusive to that city. And so if you look at the old promotion, the way it was run, Vern Gagne would run the AWA out of Minneapolis and they would have their taping days. They would tape the shows for the Twin Cities. Then they would tape all the interviews for all of the other towns. So we're going to say we're going to have a card in Denver. We're going to send the tape off to Denver. We're going to send the tape to Winnipeg. We're going to do this. But then they had to have a, a, those cities had to have a TV outlet. TV from the beginning of TV in the in the late 40s when it became the lifeblood of the business and promoted it to the, the exclusive hierarchy that it did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, TV is still the lifeblood of a wrestling promotion making money. You're not going to make money and you're not going to have a territory if you don't have fans that can turn on TV and see it in their town. If you don't have TV, you don't have it. It's In my opinion, that's still the only reason... Any promotion that comes in and wants to run opposition, even back in these, even back in these uh, opposition promotions, I told you would happen in the territory days. The, the the promoter coming in had to have a TV outlet. If he didn't have TV, that's one of the reasons he couldn't succeed. The fans have to have TV. The promotion needs TV. Then you do. You need good experienced referees. <clears throat> your pitch your pitch man you need your your representative your promoter whatever you call them you need the booker the guy that can put the matches together and the finishes the storylines i i don't see it happening in a territorial system anymore because there is no talent out there in the old days you could call you know the promoter and say i'm going to start promoting in atlanta so i'm going to give ole anderson a call have him come in be my booker right. i'm going to call george scott or i'm going to call ed francis have them come in, be my booker. Any of these guys, you know, who, who they want. The other thing is, you know, when it changed so badly, I say badly, probably it's for the younger fan, it isn't. But when you got to have all these writers on staff, you know, you give the people, I got a blank sheet of paper here, kids, but you got, you give them two pages and say, here, memorize this. You know, this is your script for the show tonight. Memorize this and go out there and give this interview. <coughs> Excuse me. So the poor wrestler, he's got to spend the next three afternoons memorizing this thing so he can go out and grab a microphone. In the territory days, they didn't do that. Every wrestler of any merit, the Bachwinkles, the Mad Dogs, the Crushers, the Bruno Sammartinos, the Kolots, the Superstars, Ray Stevens, Eddie Graham's Rhodes, you go down the roster, Fritz von Erichs, all these superstars. All they did was know what town they were in and who their opponent was and where they were in the 
program with them, you know, like how far along in the feud. And then they go in there and they got two minutes, three minutes on the TV interview to blurt out whatever they were going to blurt out. It was all ad-libbed. I mean, think of Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan was so good on the microphone. All you had to do was tell him you're going to be wrestling the Crusher in Denver and, and he could go off or whatever it did. And he made it up as he went along and he was beautiful. You, the wrestlers can't do that today. Not only that, the promotion, the writers won't give them the opportunity. So they give them a two-page dissertation that by the time they get past the first paragraph, I'm turning the channel because I don't know what right. the hell you're talking about. And that's a true story. Every About once every three, four weeks. True. I will turn on Monday Night Raw. It comes on at 7 o'clock here. I'll turn it on. Lo and behold, here comes somebody out into the ring and they start jabbering. And they go on for 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, whoops, somebody's entrance music. Oh, and they look surprised and they look at the screen. And here comes the next guy. And then he has 10 minutes. It's 25 after 7 and I'm going... What the hell are they they even doing here? And I turn it off. That's my exposure. And then I don't I don't pay attention for three more weeks. So the art of the of the wrestling business is gone. It's working today. It's working today in the in the way it's presented for the fans that are buying into it. And it's a success. So everything I'm saying probably doesn't make sense. But it's a different product. We cannot have wrestling the way we had it. And so there will be one wrestling promotion. Maybe somebody tries to challenge them here and there. But again, there are not enough wrestlers. None of these guys, I don't care what you say, guys. None of these wrestlers are properly trained anymore. They're not. How many wrestlers get hurt today? A lot of them. How many are short, shorter careers? A lot of them. The things they do... At age 40, they're all going to be cripples. They're, they're not trained properly anymore. Assuming half of them live to 40. Well, and then, you know, not to mention in the past two decades, how many of them, we've had all the substance abuse, abuse and, and you know, the steroids. We talked about superstar Billy Graham earlier. You know, he was he was kind of the one that ushered that crap in. You know, get the, get the best looking body by using the steroids and everybody else does it. One of the greatest things that happened back in, uh, this would have been probably the later 80s, early 90s, whenever the Vince McMahon steroid trial thing was taking place. That was about 93 or 4 or 5 or something, wasn't it? Yes, and yeah. Vince McMahon made the comment, he says, I never told anyone to use steroids. I never advocated anyone to take uh, any substances. But here's what really happened. Guy comes in. I want to work. I want to wrestle for you, Vince. Vince looks at the guy. Vince says, oh, I can't use you. You're not You're not big enough for me. I, I can't do anything with you. What did he just tell the guy? The guy goes out. The next six months to a year, he's juicing himself up. He comes back in. You know, now he's Hulk. He's some big monster. And Vince looks at him. Oh, yeah, I could put you on. And, and then, you know, he's the next superstar. He didn't tell him to do the steroids. He didn't tell him to do any drugs. But the wrestler wasn't going to have any business. We're going to be in the business or make any money in the business if he didn't do that. Now, it's again, it's a personal choice. Did he have to do it? No, but he chose to. Nick Bockwinkel, oh, man, I tell you what, he said it the best to me. He said, 
this was one time when some of the guys were passing away, the young kids in the 30s and the 40s supposedly had heart attacks, you know, and all this. And we know that it was the cocaine use and it was steroids and whatever else. And Nick said to me, he said, you know, it's really a shame because when I wrestled in my era, he said, we we just, we'd work out a little bit. We didn't have the muscle. Look at all those guys from that. They weren't muscle freaks. No. They, they were bigger than some of the average Joes on the street, but they weren't muscle bound freaks. And he says, we would work out a little bit. We'd have our matches. We'd grab a case of beer, go back to the hotel, get up the next morning, go to the next town, do the same thing. Yep. Where in the business that it became, if you weren't six foot seven, and if you didn't have a body, uh, the muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles, I think of guys like uh, Bobby Lashley. I look at him and I go, the Every time I see him, I go, you're just, you're a freak. You know, he, he, but he's, he's, he gets a lot of his push. And my opinion, folks, he gets a lot of his push because of his size. I don't think he's got talent in his little finger. So that's what the business is today. Well, I'll, I mean, that's, that's a that's sad, sad note to end on. So, uh, Benny, as we wrap up, final thought to you. Well, it's, you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, record, um, I, I want to expound on what George said about Vince McMahon. I mean, everybody says, well, Vince McMahon made wrestling better. And my theory till my last breath on earth will be that Vince McMahon made wrestling better for Vince McMahon. Because when you think about it, and George made a lot of these points, you know, there were a lot more wrestlers back in the day, back in the territory days making a gainful living than there are now way more wrestlers i mean how many wrestlers between aew wwe made throwing tna i mean how many maybe four or five hundred as opposed to the three thousand um as it's not better for the so it's not better for the wrestlers yeah the ones who are employed make make good money but there's less of them you know for the from the fans point of view george mentioned that they come to you know, the Target Center or wherever, maybe once or twice a year. Same thing here, Amelie Arena, once or twice a year. Back in the day here, uh, 52 uh, Tuesdays uh, um, um, uh, a year, they wrestled at the Homer Hesterly. I think it's, yeah, I think it was Tuesday night. <laughs> Tampa, so, uh, Tampa was Tuesday night. Every right, 52, you know, Mid-South Coliseum, Memphis was Monday night, 52 times a year. So instead of seeing wrestling twice, once, you saw it 50 times. So, I don't think it's better for the fans. And yeah, maybe they, you know, 2.5, 2.7 million people watch SmackDown on a Friday night. And that's maybe that sounds like a lot. But compared to, you know, 30 or 40 different TV shows that ran ran around the country uh, throughout the week, I guarantee you there's a lot more than 2.7 people watching wrestling. So let, let me ask you, let me put it this way to you. One of the things that's interesting is the attendance thing that you brought up. So I look at the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. In the 50s and the 60s, we were sometimes we were running twice a week. They would run a card on Tuesday night and Saturday night. But as we got into the 70s, it basically came down to once a month, give or take, maybe every maybe twice a month, a couple of times. The average crowd that they would draw, if it was just a normal card, you know, nothing, no big blow-off cage matches or anything like that. 
So they were they would be running a card and they would draw anywhere from say 3000 to about 6500 7000 fans to our respective auditoriums in the days. We didn't have the big arenas. Our St. Paul auditorium back in the 60s if it was filled to capacity for wrestling, it would hold 10,000 people. We had a couple of those. But here's my point. If you're running a card every month or every two weeks, and you're drawing, let's just say 5,000 fans, well, do the math and figure out how many fans they're drawing. Whereas a McMahon has to go out and put on this mega show one time a year to draw whatever amount of people that he draws. And does McMahon make any money on a guy like me, who I get it on my cable system, Raw and SmackDown, but I don't watch him. And when I do, do I buy? Do I ever support his pay-per-views or do I ever buy any of his his uh, marketing gimmicks? You know, what are they? Uh, you know, the action figures or whatever. I don't buy. I don't buy a thing. So how is he making money on me? He isn't. And how many of me are there out there? that never support him. And he could come right into Target Field or Target Center here. I won't go see him if I have free tickets. You could give me a free pass. I won't go. I don't like the product. I just don't understand the attendance. When they, you mentioned the Fort Hesterly uh, Armory in Tampa. I think if I remember right, the Armory ran every Tuesday, as we said, but I think they, for wrestling, they could maybe hold, I don't know, 3,500? Right. Well, 52 nights a year, do 3,500. And I, I, I'm not doing my banking math anymore, so you got to figure it out. But uh, 3,500. 182,000. Yep. All right. So for a year, for an entire year, he did 182,000 fans. I think that's pretty damn good. Right. No? Yeah. And, and those guys had a steady living. Because... You know, you talk about the territorial system. So you had Tampa on Tuesday night. I think Miami ran Monday night. Then they had West Palm Beach. And Orlando one night. Fort, yeah, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale. Um, all of these cities, you know, a guy could go to work in Florida. He could have a nice, nice living in Florida and wrestle five or six nights a week. Make money. And you know, look at how big the look at how big uh, Florida was as a territory. Look at all the talent that came there. I mean, every every card was filled with megastars. Absolutely. In yeah. the business, you know, from Dusty Rhodes on all the way down to the Scott McGees and whoever was working in the in the undercards. Go to Houston. Every single Friday night for 35, 40 years. The only Friday night they never ran was when it when it happened on Christmas Eve. And then they would usually have a Sunday card that one time or something like that. But otherwise, uh, 52 Friday nights a year at the uh, Houston Coliseum. And they would draw huge crowds every Friday night. I mean, at that, at that point, it's like, you know, if I'm, I'm living in Tampa or even Memphis or where. It's a part of your life. I mean, you're, you know, and, and the water cooler like uh, in, in Memphis on Tuesday morning, I guarantee you, everybody was talking about the, the Lawler-Dundee match. Yeah. It, was, it, was, well, it was a lifestyle. Yeah. Well, here's an example, too. Guys in the AWA, 
So we're up in Minnesota where, you know, six, seven, eight months of the year, the weather is so inclement, you you question your sanity to be here. So, but that's when they drew well for wrestling because people didn't have anything else to do. Let's go to the wrestling card. You know, you can't go to, you can't go out boating. You can't go out on a, a camping trip because it's too cold. So a lot of times wrestlers up here in the AWA would take a, a vacation, <coughs> excuse me, in the winter time and they'd go to call up eddie graham i'm going to bring the family down we're going to be down there for a couple three weeks eddie graham would put them on cards one good example ray stevens nick bockwinkle in 1972 they were the awa tag team champions well they ended up going on vacation to florida they went down to florida they ended up teaming together down there, picking up some extra money on their vacation. I mean, you could be with your family all day and then you can go and wrestle for, you know, a half hour, make some money. They went down there for that three weeks. They actually won. They never acknowledged them as AWA tag team champions, but they went down there and they actually won. I think it was the Florida tag team title. And then they held it for a week or two and they lost it back. And then they're back home here wrestling. It offered the guys that opportunity to go down and pick up a few dollars in a warmer sure. climate and still get, they might have paid for their vacation. Who knows? You know, I'm going to go to Florida with the family. So we'll, we'll pay for the vacation by working two nights, right? three nights. It, it's, a, it's a different animal, guys. And I, I lived it. I miss it, but I don't see it ever coming back. Yeah, I agree. Well, George, we, uh, you know, always a pleasure having you on. We always love talking to you. Um, before we let you, I guess before I should say let you go, before we wrap up tonight, uh, Benny talked about, and I see the hat there, you're, uh, you, you got a lot of involvements, uh, Hall of Fame, international wrestling fans, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the WFIA has, so, uh, social media presence and some events. And I'll give you a last minute ch- uh, plug anything you want. Talk about Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. Well, I just think with the WFIA that we started the program off with, this is this is new to a lot of modern day fans. The key thing is is that some of the old guard are involved behind the scenes in this. Myself, Dave Brzezinski, Tom Burke, uh, Brad Drake, who is is just a great ambassador for some of the old and some of the new and we we are we're excited about making wrestling uh the way it used to be and we can't have the territories back but we can sure have the fun and like i said guys it's free we're not we used to charge dues in the old days i don't know was five dollars a year or something for wfia back in the day but we're not going to have a, an on-site. Uh, we're not equipped for that yet. But we're not going to have an on-site uh, uh, convention. But definitely the dates are set for next September in 24. And without the calendar in front of me, I think it's the 24th, 25th, 26th or something. Don't hold me to that. But it's right right in that weekly time frame. And it's going to be a virtual thing where fans will be able to sign up. There will be a cost for you to take part in this. We're going to have wrestlers on board at different times that will come online. You'll be able to chat with them. 
You'll be able to, you know, there will be some autographs involved. Um, I don't know if people are going to want to charge for them or anything. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, some wrestlers will want to be a, be paid to appear. I, I don't know how that's going to work yet, but we're working on this. But just become part of the WFIA. There's a lot of old nostalgia that's being shared on the page on Facebook and also on the WW or the WFIA um, website. So go to it and just join. You don't have to do anything else, and you'll you'll be entertained. And there, the the magazine, as uh, Benny pointed out. Very professionally done, but it's online. It's all digital, so you can print out your own copy if you want. But it's there, but it's fantastic. It, it is great. I've read it. I, Absolutely. Read it. It's great stuff. That's the Wrestling Fans International. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, you guys have some great stuff. I want to say, you know, you said you weren't sure about how things were going to play out. Uh, the the photo op autograph combo from Dan and Benny at the, your convention will be uh, $1,500. So just a heads up on that. We accept Subway or uh, if you have any of those expired Toys R Us bucks, those are good with us. Too. I was going to say Monopoly money also. That would work. <laughs> just just uh, uh, Benny will take a handwritten IOU a beer next time I'm in Tampa. Yeah. Any, anything's good. As long as Benny doesn't give away any of the shirts that he wears and puts on social media. <laughs> oh, no, man, those are mine. <laughs> you know, honest to God, I... I they're, they're worse than the old test patterns on TV I used to see as a kid. I tell people, no, I'm sorry, Benny. I forgot screen, you were still this here. This is really my shirt. <laughs> I, I love your shirts when you share them. Oh, that's great stuff. Well, there you have it. Another great episode. We always love talking to George. George, we always love having you. So for George Shire, for Benny, your, uh, your, your new and improved nickname. I love it. Playa. For the player, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spasciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.